We're going to read as uh, part of the series that you've been doing, uh, Acts chapter 4 and verses 1 to 22. And our theme this morning is Fearless Followers Stand for Christ. So Acts chapter 4 at verse 1, let's follow God's word together. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? This was the healing at the temple of the crippled beggar. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected which has become the capstone or cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw to the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, We must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege to be able to share your word in this congregation with these people. And I pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit and open up the text that we have read, that you would speak to us and bring to us your word. But awaken in us open hearts and minds that we may listen for your voice and that we might 
in hearing your voice respond to it this morning. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I want to commend you for the AWAKE initiative. It's lovely to get the uh, information on a regular basis about what's going on in Orangefield and how in this initiative you've been sharing with other congregations and developing this heart for Belfast. May the AWAKE process not be an end in itself, but a catalyst for change and deeper discipleship as you hunger for God's Spirit. Read the Word, care for one another, and love your neighbors. What was it that propelled Peter, John, and the apostles to holy and fearless witness for Jesus Christ? What propelled them was not simply being filled with the Holy Spirit, as it says in verse 8, but their unshakable belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were utterly convinced that this Jesus, whom many of them had seen dying on the cross, they had also seen him resurrected and living, having fellowship with them, eating food with them, touching them, holding them, embracing them. With their own eyes they saw, and therefore with deep conviction they believed that Jesus Christ is alive. Acts chapter 4 and verse 2, let me read that again for you. The, the, the people in the religious leadership and the Sanhedrin and so forth, verse 2 tells us, were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Hope, resurrection, a future and the disciples and the apostles were preaching Jesus and his resurrection. So how did these first followers of Jesus fearlessly take their stand for Jesus Christ? I want to suggest this morning that they had a new hope, a new power, and a new loyalty. And let's look at what I mean by that. First of all, a new hope. The Sanhedrin was a kind of Jewish court. Uh, it was like a supreme court and they asked Peter and John by what authority they had performed the miracle of healing on the crippled man. And so Peter and John make clear that it was through the name of Jesus that they then healed this man or saw this man healed. And then they made one of the most fearless and bold statements to the religious leadership who were against what they were doing who were disturbed greatly by the preaching of the resurrection, and they come to say what I think is one of the most important statements of the New Testament in Acts 4 and verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we might be saved or must be saved. I truly believe this verse is of the most important uh, that we could ever find in the Scriptures. And it's of fundamental importance for us as Christians. If that statement in verse 12 was untrue, then there's absolutely no incentive to witness, no incentive to meet together as God's people as we're doing this morning. But because that statement is true, that there is salvation in no one else other than in Jesus, then it becomes the reason why the apostles were so keen to witness to their new hope. Salvation is in Jesus. 
This was the message that grabbed their hearts and their souls and their minds and their whole lives. It changed and transformed who they were as people, and it gave them a raison d'etre for life. And it should impel us to share the gospel too. For if this became the raison d'etre for the apostles, for the Jewish leaders, their whole purpose of living was the observance of the law. And this new hope of salvation was dynamite, for it said that believing into the name of Jesus is the sole means of salvation. And this new hope should embolden us to witness. Well, how do we witness fearlessly for Jesus? I think Peter gives us a great example in this chapter. Look at verse 8b of chapter 4, Acts 4. He showed respect to his audience. And when he begins his defense, he says, rulers and elders of the people. He gives them their place. He recognizes that they are the appointed Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the Jewish people. And so he starts off by saying, rulers and elders. That may not seem like rocket science to us. But being a fearless follower of Jesus does not give us a blank check for being rude, insensitive, are disrespectful to others. And in giving Peter, in Peter giving uh, his audience the title rulers and elders of the people, he's not openly antagonizing them at the start of his defense, and he gains a hearing. It's a bit like coming to a congregation like this and saying, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it gets people on side. So he showed respect to his audience. He also dealt with facts. Peter spoke of the healing of the crippled man in the temple area and indicated it was, if this was the reason they were being called before the Sanhedrin, then they, the religious leaders, needed to know that it was in and by the power and the name of Jesus whom they crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that the man they could clearly see standing before them was healed. In a world today that squeezes us into its mold, in a politically correct culture, in a post-truth society. We need not, indeed must not, be ashamed of the facts of our faith. If people find our claims about Jesus, and especially about his resurrection, to be stupendous, to be like a fairy tale, to be delusional, even offensive, well then, so be it. We need to deal with the facts of our faith. And when we are gripped with the whole truth of the resurrection of Jesus uh, and the fact that he is alive and salvation alone is found in him, then we will fearlessly witness for Christ. And let me come back to verse 12, uh, where Peter boldly made an exclusive claim about Jesus. And I, I choose that sentence wisely. He made an exclusive claim about Jesus. We live in a world and a culture where people don't like exclusivity and claims to exclusivity. But I make no apology for reading verse 12 again because I, I think it's so important. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men or women by which we must be saved. Why is that statement so important? Well, in a religious pick-and-mix culture, in a society that hates exclusivistic claims, in a culture that calls Christians certainty, arrogance, and religious extremism or religious colonialism, 
we must understand that there is salvation nowhere else and in no one else other than in Jesus. Muhammad cannot save us. Buddha cannot save. The myriad Hindu God cannot save. No religion and indeed no Christian church can save sinners, only Jesus. And the question is, do you believe that? Are you fearlessly yet sensitively proclaiming that? You try going into work tomorrow and fearlessly taking a stand for Jesus if you really, really believe that he is the Savior of the world. Are we prepared to take a stand for him? Sensitively, but fearlessly as well. And of course, we can and must believe that if we believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God as he claimed to be. You know, Jesus said so many things about himself. Uh, uh, Let me just point you to one of them in John chapter 14 and verse 6, words that are so very familiar to you, but it, it absolutely picks up Acts 4 and 12 because Jesus says this in John 14 and verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the most exclusive claims that you could imagine. And what Peter is proclaiming in Acts 4.12 is simply based on the sayings of Jesus and the truth that Jesus proclaimed that there is no other way to find salvation, no other way to the Father except through him. He is the door that opens our lives to eternity. He is the exclusive way, the truth, and the life. And If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then we need to believe that as he claimed that, it has to be true. So he boldly made an exclusive claim about Jesus. And then also, I think here, interestingly, Peter used Scripture. Peter quoted from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28 in his defense in Acts chapter 4. And I want to say this, if you think you can witness successfully without any reference to Scripture... If you think that you can be used powerfully by God without any knowledge of the Bible, I think you're frankly mistaken. This Bible we have is the word of truth. It is the primary source of God's communication to us and to the world. If you want to know what God is saying, we need to go to the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to bring to us that truth and an understanding of it and application of it. So if you want to fearlessly follow Jesus, read the manual. Read the manual. Read the Scriptures. And the more we're convinced of the truth of God's Word, the more we will want to share our faith. And this isn't just a forensic reading of the Bible out of duty and responsibility. It's an opportunity to meet God as we encounter Him through His Word. And as I've always said, the closer we grow to God, the closer we grow to each other. And the closer we go to God, then the more we'll be convinced of the truth of who he is. We have a new hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. Secondly, Peter and the early apostles discovered a new power. We believe that Jesus is alive in heaven. And that the Bible tells us he's ever making intercession for us. I think that's amazing and lovely. 
Jesus is praying for you. As you go through the hundred days of prayer, as you take on board what awake means for you and for the congregations you're sharing with and for the people of East Belfast and Belfast and the, the, the province of which we're part, as you go through all that, Jesus is making intercession for you. He's praying for you. That's a lovely and wonderful picture that we have of Jesus in heaven praying for us. But he has not left us alone. He has given us his Holy Spirit who indwells our lives, who, as I've often said, works in us to make us more like Jesus. The Spirit operates to work out our disgrace and ungrace and to work into us the love and the grace and the power of God, the Son. He is present with us, a sure possession, a deposit, says the Apostle Paul, of what is to come in glory. Let's refer you to Acts chapter 4 and verses 14 and 15. I love this because this is the reaction of the Sanhedrin as they uh, taking issue with the, the, the apostles and saying that they, they, they shouldn't be uh, teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. Uh, in the previous verse, I love that it says they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Uh, and let me just digress from what I was going to say before I read the verse. When you go into work tomorrow or deal with the people in your home who live with you or maybe you're on your own and people come into your home, when you meet people socially this week, will they take note that you and I have been with Jesus What an amazing thing if in work tomorrow people could see because of the working, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine, something different about him or her and recognize that we'd been with Jesus. And because of all that, verse 14 and 15 says this, but since the Sanhedrin could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. It's very difficult when you see a man that you know because you've gone to the temple or the church to worship every Sunday. You see them begging uh, uh, on the street, and, and you know that he cannot walk. It's very difficult to stand with the man standing healed, leaping and praising God to say, it hasn't really happened. There was nothing they could say. The power of the Holy Spirit had worked to bring healing to this crippled man. They had no answer to the power of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. For make no mistake, it was the power of the Holy Spirit working through what we might today call these laymen, as we might call them, that brought the healing of Jesus. Remember verse 8 says that Peter spoke, filled with the Holy Spirit that new power that comes to those who belong to Jesus. What is that power? It's a new power to witness. Sometimes we worry about what we might say. We get all choked up with fear. And and maybe sometimes, you know, when we do try and say a word for Jesus, we think of something 10 minutes later, oh, I wish I'd said that, and we think we're hopeless. And the difficulty is we think it's all to do with us. The Holy Spirit brings a new power to witness when we trust Him and ask Him to fill us and to equip us and to help us. He gives us a new power to witness. And even our most stumbling comments 
he can take and use for his glory. The Holy Spirit brings a new power to consciously live daily for and with Jesus. You know, as we get older, we should be becoming more and more like Jesus. As we grow in the Christian life, as I said earlier, the Holy Spirit should be working out that ungrace and disgrace from our lives and working in more and more of Jesus and his love and power. How do we do that? We come every day and say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Push out all that is dross and unworthy of Jesus and ugly. And fill me, Lord, with your love and grace and hope. A new power to consciously live daily for and with Jesus. A new power to abide in Christ the true vine. If you depend on your hold of God, then you're in trouble. And over the years, I've come to learn that what is really important is not that I have reached out and taken hold of God. Because if I depend on that, my grasp is very weak. But what I depend upon is that God has reached down and taken hold of me. And in his grasp, I am held. And Jesus himself said that no one and nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hands. And the Holy Spirit gives us that power to abide in Christ. He is the true vine. He is the one in which we put down our roots, and he brings to us this, the power and presence and witness of the Holy Spirit. And he brings also a new power to choose not to sin. You know when you sin, you do it because you like it. When you consciously choose to go against God and go your way instead of his way, it's because you enjoy it. But the Holy Spirit brings to us a new power to say no to sin, to say to Satan, get behind me, clear off. The Holy Spirit brings a new power to choose not to sin. So Peter and the apostles had this new hope of salvation in Jesus, a new power. They also discovered a new loyalty. Identity is always important, perhaps more than anything in the world that we live today with so many people coping with mental health issues and all kinds of things going on in our lives. Identity is key. And I think the first century Jewish leaders had confused their faith in God with keeping their rules and regulations. They were loyal to their own version of the law that was pure legalism, and their legalism suffocated any relationship they had with God. Their identity was bound up in their religion rather than in God himself. And the Sadducees, by tradition, held a high priestly office, and they collaborated with the Roman authorities, and they worked hard to gain their status in Jewish society. And in fact, this new teaching on the resurrection was against their beliefs. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they saw Peter and John's preaching as a threat to their status as well as to their theology. They couldn't deny that the man crippled from birth had been healed. They saw him, as I said earlier, standing there in front of them. But they demanded to know by what authority they had performed this miracle, a gift of a question to the apostles who were only too ready to testify. But they sought to ban them from preaching in the name of Jesus. 
A Bible commentator, commentator F.F. Bruce, wrote this. It is noteworthy that no attempt seemed to have been made by the Sanhedrin to disprove the central affirmation of the Apostles' proclamation, the resurrection of Jesus. Yet if they had thought there was a reasonable chance of success, would they not have done so? And so these religious leaders, blinded by pride and the need to keep face, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, verse 18. Imagine how you would feel if the high court in Belfast banned you from witnessing and banned Christian evangelism. And I love the reply of Peter and John in Acts 4 and verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. See, once we've experienced Jesus, we cannot but help speak about what we have seen and heard. And this new loyalty, what does it look like? Let me suggest briefly a few things. Loyalty to Jesus comes before the state. That's, I think, what Peter and John were saying. The New Testament is clear that we all have a responsibility to honor lawfully constituted authority and to be good citizens. But Peter and John remind us there's one exception. We must obey God rather than men. And the day may come in my lifetime and yours when the British state will demand that the church does things that are clearly unbiblical. They may threaten the church in the near future with the removal of things like gift aid. And if we don't conform, for example, possibly some change in equality legislation in the future, I know of a church that has made a decision that they're going to try and wean themselves off gift aid because they believe that the day is coming when they will have to stand for Christ and not conform to what the government says churches should do. And therefore they've decided that within the next 10 years they want to be completely free from being dependent on gift aid for their ministries. Loyalty to Jesus comes before the state. Loyalty to Jesus comes before work. If a job or promotion compromises our faith, if we're encouraged to cut corners, engage in tax frauds or dishonest practice, do we obey God rather than men? Are we that fearless? Loyalty to Jesus comes before family and friends. The Bible tells us that no Christian should ever neglect their family. No Christian should ever dishonor the elderly or dishonor the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, but sometimes family members don't share our faith, and we're called to honor God above even those we love. Loyalty to Jesus comes before hobbies. Hobbies are a heaven-sent opportunity to de-stress and to find pleasure and enjoyment in life, but I wonder if we counted up the time and the money that we spend on our hobbies and compare that to the time we spend in church and give to God's work and the time we spend in personal Bible reading and prayer, what would that say to us about our priorities in life? If the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, then even our free time and our money are subject to the loyalty of Christ. Loyalty to Jesus finally comes before self. Again, with so many suffering from some form of mental illness, 
So many people in our society debilitated by stress. Self-care is not selfishness. It is hugely important. To say no to ostensibly good things, however, is as biblical as saying yes. You do not have to say yes to everything because that may not be right for you, even good things. And loyalty to Jesus comes before self. And I mean by that this. When Jesus was facing the cross and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Do you see the difference? I think the Bible would support us in saying we've got to care for ourselves and our spiritual lives and our souls. And we're praying for an awakening in our souls as well as in our church and in our land. So that awakening in our souls is is something that is bound up with doing the will of Jesus. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours, Lord. What is your will for my life? What is your purpose for my life? Help me to do it. And loyalty to God comes before self. Very small example. Many of you will have heard me saying this before. When I went to university, I decided not to do an honors English degree, but took on board in my first year a social work option with my degree, uh, which meant that I was uh, put into a a non-honors English uh, section and uh, did placements for social work options and so forth. After a year of successfully completing my assignments for that, the social work department came to me and said, Ken, we made a mistake. Uh, and uh, you actually shouldn't have been admitted into, uh, for, into this course. Uh, and they invited me to finish my, my ordinary English degree and come back and train for two years in social work with them. And it turned my life upside down because what I was really saying was, and I had a plan to be a student counselor, uh, and I was thinking I'm going to serve you, God. I'm going to be uh, uh, social work qualified and work in student counseling. Aren't you pleased with me? And he turned me upside down. And he said, Ken, actually, that's not what I want. And I was left with an ordinary English degree. I didn't want to teach. I had no idea what I would do with it, and I rebelled against the idea of coming into the ministry. Some of you have heard me preach, might say, oh, you know, pity he did. But God turned my life upside down because really what Jesus was saying to me, Ken, it's not your will but mine for your life. That's what makes the difference. That's what I mean by saying loyalty to Jesus comes before loyalty to self. Not that you do not care for yourself. You must care for yourselves and not overdo things and not get stressed out because you'd never say no to good things. But loyalty to Jesus comes first, above everything. So a new hope. We have salvation to reclaim to the city of Belfast, to the island of Ireland. And here is a time in our history when people are wondering about all kinds of things to do with identity. Am I British? Am I Irish? Am I unionist? Am I nationalist? Am I European? Am I... UK, separated from Europe, identity is very, very important. We have a higher identity to 
proclaimed to the people of Belfast, I am a child of God. I am part of his family. I am adopted into his family. I am part of the church of Jesus Christ. And we have a message. Salvation is found in no one else. A new hope. And I yearn when I see people who make a mess of their lives that they've just come to know Jesus and be transformed because that new hope brings a new power, the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray in a minute or two that God might come by his Spirit and powerfully work in our lives. A new power and a new loyalty, Jesus only. I used to say to you, and I said again, that our ambition in life should be to live to an audience of one, only Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on stage. And uh, what I'd love to do is just take a moment or two before our last song to uh, pray with you, to give you an opportunity to respond. Uh, I'm going to use uh, at the end of the prayer time uh, the prayer that's in this uh, 100 Days booklet, a great booklet, very powerful. Uh, I, I've enjoyed uh, reading uh, through it so far. Uh, and we're going to finish with the prayer for awakening today that's on page 23 uh, of the booklet. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word this morning. Let's uh, close our eyes and uh, pray together. Lord, as we reflect on what we have heard from your word this morning, give us open and responsive hearts. Forgive us, Lord, if we have compromised the gospel. Forgive us if we have compromised by fearfulness rather than fearlessness. Forgive us if the people that we work with and meet day in, day out have no idea that we say that we belong to Jesus. And grant, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and boldness to proclaim to a world that is increasingly antagonistic towards our Christian faith, to say that there is salvation in no one else, no other name than in the name of Jesus. Help us to boldly and fearlessly proclaim that. Forgive us if our lives are compromised by sin. Maybe there's something you need to bring to God that you need to turn away from. It may be a wrong relationship, maybe a wrong habit that brings no honor to God, but only dishonor. It may be wrong priorities. It may be that there's someone that you hate and the love of Jesus is not flooding your heart for them. Maybe somebody you have a grudge against and faith is compromised. Bring that to God now. Lay that at the foot of his cross and say, Jesus, forgive. 
It may be that when you think of the power of the Holy Spirit that worked through Peter to bring healing and hope and freedom to the crippled, that you feel that your life is weak and empty. Perhaps this morning you need to pray, Come, Lord Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me afresh. Push out of my life everything that is contrary to Jesus and dishonoring to him. And fill me with the life, the love, and the grace, and the power of Jesus. Maybe you need to pray that. And in a world of competing identities, where sometimes, even in church, we put on masks that hide what's really going on inside, in a world when people are increasingly concerned about who they are, thank you that our loyalty is to Jesus. And Lord, may you help us to be a people who say, not my will, but yours be done in me and through me and in our world and in our community. Whatever way you need to respond to God this morning, just take that moment of quiet to do so. we finish this prayer for awakening today in our awake booklet. Lord, we pray for a great awakening in our souls, our city, and our land. May your people be awakened in prayer for the sake of our nation. We ask you to awaken our souls in confession of sin and repentance by your spirit and word to your mission and call. We pray for an awakening in this great city of Belfast that it would experience widespread revival in the name of Jesus Christ through an invasion of the Holy Spirit as the church is set on fire. Amen.